<coughs> so, so continuing our into the afternoon of our Anapanasati day. This morning we kind of did a whirlwind tour of the first tetrad. And, um, and so now we're going to start with the second tetrad, which is um, the first of which involves joy. And uh, I've often find it kind of odd, or I don't know what exactly, odd that um, the word, the Pali word for joy is pronounced in, uh, just like the English word pity. <laughs> no, what a pity. <laughs> and um, so pity, <clears throat> usually spelled P-I-T-I. And um, there are a lot of um, places where it's understood or expected or something that in the course of Buddhist practice, a person will experience joy and happiness, delight, gladness, variety of things. And uh, <coughs> so, <coughs> variety of places where the path of practice involves going through a period of joy and happiness. Joy and happiness is not an ordinary joy and happiness or something. is not the point of practice, but uh, it's expected to be part of it. And if a person has practiced for a long time, I don't know what a long time means right now, but don't, don't ask, <laughs> and, and doesn't experience some joy or some happiness, that certainly um, warrants some discussion with some teacher or some, some, some explanation, some contemplation, because there's some expectation that uh, joy and happiness is going to be part of your meditative path so sooner or later. Uh, it doesn't, it's not a linear path, you know, as many of you know, it goes around in kind of spirals. You have periods of concentration followed by periods of distraction, periods of joy followed by periods of despair or something. <clears throat> and hope we all we all hope, and it's probably the case, that all of this is a kind of going forward in a spiral kind of way. That sometimes when we open up to new areas of our life and are settled, more relaxed lower our defenses and stuff. We feel good for a while, but that also that lowering defenses allows something deeper to bubble up and show itself. And so it's not uncommon for people to have some kind of opening experience in meditation, thinking this is great, only to be followed by some period of difficulty. So um, it can happen many different ways, but joy is expected to be part of the path. Now, it's very dangerous to expect it to be part of the path. You know, even though it's expected, (laughs) Uh, many teachers will tell you, don't expect it. Don't expect anything to happen. Just kind of just be relaxed and just be with what is. So, but, uh, so you, somehow we have to negotiate this, that on one hand, you know, sooner or later should be ex- some expectation of something like joy, some sense of well-being that comes with the practice. On the other hand, we have to be very careful not to get attached to it, not to be forcing it, not to be judging ourselves negatively. There's a lot of traps that can happen when we're kind of trying to focus on having joy. Now, uh, when uh, Ajahn Jumyun, who's a wonderful Thai teacher, comes to Spirit Rock almost every year, 
he doesn't speak much English, but he does know the word happy. And so everyone's sitting waiting for him to come and he finally shows up and he walks down the aisle and he goes, happy, happy, happy. (laughs) So it's hard not to be a little bit happier, at least when he says it. But then it's also important to realize that joy is not the end result and that oddly enough in the Buddhist uh, spiritual path, uh, joy is an intermediate step that's recognized as being, I don't know if they don't say it this way, but I'll say it this way, recognized as being somewhat um, coarse or somewhat uh, uh, pro, um, well, certainly less super, more superficial or less deep or less deeply satisfying than things that follow joy. So initially when people experience joy in their practice, which can be, <coughs> at times can be quite intense. Some people think, this is it, I've arrived, this must be awakening. And, and, um, and then after some time, they said, this is getting tiring. You know, all this rapture, I mean, just, gee, you know, it's good in the beginning, but I'm just exhausted. Enough of this. So, that, so the idea is to move beyond that at some point. But still, there's an important phase to go through. Um, it's also very important to be very respectful of where we're at. And, um, and when there's discussion about joy, not to feel like you have to be there. Maybe just kind of take it in kind of, um, you know, as information even initially or as a potential. Um, and, but not, 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 it's, it's possible to kind of measure oneself against discussion of joy and say, well, I never had that or, you know, I'm just, you know, grieving the loss of someone or something horrible has happened to me and, and therefore I don't fit here. This isn't not for me. Um, we always want to be, always, the practice is always to be at ease with what is, to be respectful of what is, to kind of be how we are, and to understand the depth, the, the very deep importance of being present for what's happening for us. And that that's, that's the door to what needs to happen for us, to our own process, to some kind of whatever. And um, so it just happens to be that we'll talk about joy now, but if that's not your phase for you, you know, don't, don't don't take that as being some judgment about you. What's supposed to happen? So, part of the process of meditation is arriving in the present moment. Part of the process of meditation is training the mind or relaxing the mind enough so that the the attention can just stay stabilized here and now. Mind's not likely to wander off in thoughts of the future and the past. The mind is not li- likely to be caught up in um, in uh, sensual desires or even sensual pleasure. Uh, because any time the mind is caught up, the mind is caught. The mind is obsessed. The mind is kind of lost from this kind of uh, more open meditative awareness that we're looking for. Uh, we also have to, so a big part of meditation is overcoming the forces of distraction, including thinking about other times and other places, and thinking a lot or being concerned a lot about comfort, sensual pleasure, sensual desires. And that can certainly be uh, overcoming the desires for uh, all kinds of wonderful sensual pleasures which are not here and now, so sensual fantasies that can be wonderful people it's possible to sit and have wonderful fantasies very fulfilling fantasies 
of food, of massage, of sandy beaches, of sex, of you know, all kinds of things, sitting here meditating because you know, the alternative is less interesting. So people go off and they're fantasizing and sometimes the, the mind, for a variety of reasons, is very strongly motivated to go seek sensual pleasure, sensual desire. And uh, there are certainly people on retreat who spend an inordinate amount of time lost in the world of sensual pleasure, sensual desire, fantasy. And also, but also there's a kind of, uh, kind of a strong feeling that uh, attachment sometimes to being comfortable. And so, so any kind of, there can be an idea that if I'm uncomfortable in meditation, it must be a personal failing. And if I'm successful in my meditation, it's supposed to be comfortable. And I'm always looking for comfort, you know, kind of adjusting this and that, looking for how to be comfortable. And that's also kind of preoccupation with sensual pleasure in Buddhist terminology. So that has to be overcome in order to develop a meditative mind, in order to be really be here, present moment. Um, also, this kind of preoccupation, sensual pleasure, is involves some degree of tension, pressure, compulsion in the mind. The mind isn't, you know, you, you're, something is driving you, something is running you, something is in charge. You're not in charge. Your desires are in charge. And so you've lost your freedom. And also there involves some kind of tension. If you really tune into that well, sensitively, you'll feel that physical, psychological, emotional, mental tension or stress that is involved in even beautiful sensual desire, fantasies. Um, it comes at a cost. So you have to overcome that. The other thing that has to be have to over- overcome is what the tradition calls unskillful states of mind. So unskillful states of mind in shorthand are things that cause suffering. Uh, so we have to overcome those states of mind that cause us suffering. And the shorthand for those is greed, hate, and delusion. But they include a lot of other things. The five hindrances and many different things can cause suffering for us. And so unskillful states of mind, or unskillful activity of the mind has to be overcome. And here again, we see when there's unskillful states of mind, when there's greed, when there's hate, when there's um, uh, strong um, you know, um, anxiety, there's a whole range of strong um, unskillful states of mind that t- can take over. Or, uh, the mind is involved in has stress in it. It's a tense situation. There's pressure, there's compulsion, there's kind of a drivenness going on, and which is uncomfortable, which is not settled and relaxed. And, uh, and also there's a filter. Even if you have, you're present, if you're, if you're seeing or, or relating to your experience through unskillful states of mind, um, and then you're not really present. You're kind of, there's a veil between you and the experience. So if you're experiencing something, uh, knee pain, and you hate knee pain, you really hate it. I mean, gee, you know, then you're experiencing it through the hate, through an unskillful state of mind. Or if you have some wonderful bliss meditating, this is great, and you try to hold on to it, then that's an unskillful state of mind, that grasping and clinging to it. And so that also becomes a filter where we're not really present. And we're adding stress, we're adding tension to the system, to what's going on. So in order to be present in a relaxed, open, clear way, to really be present for something without a filter and without tension, there has to be an overcoming of unskillful states of mind, this activity of unskillful things. So this is one way of describing the process people have to go through in order to finally arrive here in the present moment in a state where the mind is stabilized here in the present moment, not wandering into the past and the future, into thought, not reacting to what's going on, but simply here. When that happens, when we're finally here, really here, you feel like the mind's not going to wander wander away so much. 
it can feel like a relief. Wow, you know, this is great. You know, wow. You know, finally I'm free of all this. You know, it's been years. I've kind of this mind has been dragging me around left and right for years, into you know this thought and that concern and this lost uh, preoccupation and this reaction and this that. And now finally, I have the in a sense I have the upper hand. And finally, I'm not being carried away in these things. I'm just here. The mind is stable and I'm present. And it can be a real relief to feel that. It can also be joyful. There can be a kind of a joy that comes with that, kind of delight, kind of a sense of well-being, kind of appreciation, kind of rejoicing. Not just relief, but yeah, this is great. Good. Um, so, so the whole process of the first tetrad of coming into the present moment and then relaxing the body, relaxing the bodily formations, uh, and uh, coming into the present moment, relaxing all the things that kind of keep you from the present moment, eventually brings you a place where you're here well enough that you'll feel, hopefully, some sense of relief that you're finally here. Wow. And you might even feel a little bit, for the time being, temporarily, a little bit secure even. Oh, yeah, it feels like I'm going to stay here for a while. I'm not going to li- li- liable to drift off into this thought and that concern. I'm just here and here. And thoughts might bubble up, but you kind of see them as thought that you don't pick up. You just leave them alone. You say, oh, yeah, I'm here. Thoughts are over there. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to react. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to pick it up and follow its train. I'm just here. So um, that sense of relief and sense of joy is called in the tradition, is is, is described by the the Buddha here. Um, Joy and happiness um, born of seclusion. This word seclusion is viveka. Born of seclusion. And... um, to read you the full passage, it goes this way. Secluded, this is a very important word, whatever, secluded might not be the best English translation, but secluded from sensual desires or sensual pleasures. Secluded from sensual desires and unskillful states. A person falls into and abides in the joy and happiness born of seclusion. So secluded from... Um, Sensual desire means that you're safe from sensual desire. You're not going to be caught up in it. You're not, you're not in, in its orbit. You're not in its gravitational uh, pull. You're not, not being caught by that. You're not, so that's being secluded. And secluded from un, unskillful states of mind means, again, same thing. That you're not being pulled into the orbit. You're not being caught by, you're not being directed by unskillful states of mind. They're not operating. So you're secluded. You're, you're apart from. You are somehow freed from. You're independent from sensual desire, and unskillful states of mind. So that sense of independence, the tradition calls seclusion, or viveka. And, and, um, and that seclusion is said to uh, give birth to joy and happiness that's, that comes from that seclusion. Joy and happiness born from that seclusion. Or joy and happiness that comes from that sense of independence, of no longer being caught. And here, the Buddha, the way it's, the way it's worded, <clears throat> once a person is secluded from sensual desire and unskillful states, one falls into and abides into joy and happiness born from seclusion. This idea of falling into. Um, I guess you can jump into something, but can you fall as, a, as an active verb? Isn't falling kind of an was it, intransitive verb or inactive verb or something like that? It's something that happens to you, you fall. You don't cause yourself... I mean, you can cause yourself to... Can you cause yourself to fall? 
maybe. You can just let go, right? But once you're falling, you don't, you're not, you don't have any role anymore, right? You're just falling. So the idea being here that you fall into, it's not something you intentionally do so much as you allow yourself to kind of let go and you kind of fall into a kind of a little altered state, a little other kind of way of being than the usual habitual way in which the mind operates. So the idea of falling, in my mind at least, has the idea that, um, that uh, it's not so volitional, not like you're choosing to flip a switch and then suddenly you feel joyful and happy, it's like that. It's, um, you have to do your part in meditation practice. You have to be present and show up and concentrate and do all the things we do. Um, but um, the, uh, the switch that happens, a change that happens in the system where joy and happiness kind of start to characterize how you're feeling, that kind of sneaks up on you or kind of just appears. It isn't something that you make happen, per se. That's, that's my, my experience, for the most part. So does this make sense? So then, in the first uh, <clears throat> instruction for the second tetrad, is one trains oneself, I will breathe in experiencing joy. One trains oneself, I will breathe out experiencing joy. So it goes a little bit against what I just said. Here it seems like it's almost like you're calling forth, saying, I'm going to experience joy. But how, how I uh, experience this or go through this is that... Um, I can open myself up to the possibility of experiencing joy. And then it can be there and it can kind of bubble up and make space for it and it can grow. Or I can just be preoccupied with my breath or something else and not let it be there. And at some point, as I get more settled, uh, joy begins to become joy or well-being bubbles up. And then my practice at times is to kind of make space and allow it to grow. To allow it to grow. So we're allowed to come. And there's a way of kind of fanning the flames. It's kind of like a, the bellows. You kind of fan the flames of the joy uh, so that it becomes stronger. And this is considered to be a, uh, you know, in classic early Buddhism, a healthy thing to do. You go, and some Buddhist uh, teachers will tell you, don't do anything. Just be present. Just be present. You're not allowed to do anything. Uh, just be present. Just be present. Don't try to do anything. There's a lot of wisdom to that approach. But it also, it, uh, it's a little narrow because we also, as human beings, have the potential to be a little bit more interactively involved in our joy, our happiness, and our peace. And so this process of the 16 stages of uh, breathing uh, includes both the kind of just being present in that first two stages, but also the interactive part where we can be part of the process. We don't have to be out of the process. We can, be, in a healthy way, be part of that process of deepening and settling further. Does all that make sense? Yes, Mary. <clears throat> Yeah, if you can. Yeah. Um, I, I may, you may have said it, but um, I wasn't clear what what is um, our part in allowing the joy to arise besides the being present in the first four steps that we've um, talked about. Is there more yeah. than that? Yes. Yeah, so the. the um, so I think there are two primary approaches that uh, people might make. Uh, some people actually do something which tends to uh, uh, kind of be, be a little trigger for some kind of joy or pleasure. And the most common one that I know is that people will uh, uh, make a little half smile, turn up the lips a little bit. And some people... What? Turn up the volume. So some, some people... So, so there's two, two ways of... Uh, 
of evoking joy. One way is intentional. It's like a little switch that some people have the ability to do. And some teachers give this instruction. That is to make a little half smile as you meditate. And, uh, and just turning up the lips a little bit tends to uh, create uh, feelings of pleasure. And uh, kind of there's probably some kind of connection to serotonin. Or I don't know what it is that goes on. But uh, it tends to kind of bring kind of sense of delight or lightness or joy or pleasure or something. And then with that turned on, then they kind of begin um, augmenting it, strengthening it. The other way is to just do your practice. Maybe do the first four steps here, let go, relax, calm the body, and get into the present moment. And then at some point, um, joy, some kind of delight, will begin occurring kind of on its own. And then once it's starting to occur, then you open up to it, to experience it more fully. Rather than ignoring it, pretending it's not there or something, you actually, as a way of, of, of uh, recognizing it's there, bringing mindfulness to it, and then making space for it so it can grow. Make space for it so you can feel it more fully and, um, and let it grow through your system. Um, the uh, instructions from the Buddha, these ancient discourses, is um, um, once you feel joy and happiness born of seclusion, then the person fills, pervades, saturates and permeates this body with joy and happiness born of seclusion so that nothing of his entire body is not touched. By staying vigilant, ardent and resolute, one gives up recollections and intentions dependent on household life. Having given them up, one's mind becomes composed, settled, one-pointed and concentrated. And so, once this joy starts bubbling up, the instruction here is to somehow let it grow and develop and pervade the body. So here you can see the emphasis on the body. That's why getting into the body early is very important. So the body can be kind of a, a channel, a conduit, or a vehicle that can be filled um, with joy. So it kind of permeates, saturates, fills everything you're doing with your body. So it's not just going to kind of abstract joy. It's not just joy. It's you know a little bit there, but something that's a fully embodied joy. And um, so there's a variety of ways of doing that. Uh, one is um, uh, as as we stay, as some people can stay with a breath, for example, and get concentrated on it. There's a kind of a, the, the very act of getting concentrated on something can um, uh, um, um, stimulate joy. And I don't know the mechanism for this, and maybe there's a physiological mechanism that uh, if you keep the mind steady and concentrated, that um, maybe it stimulates some kind of uh, um, you know, hormonal pathway or neurological pathway in the mind that uh, releases endor- uh, endor- uh, endorphins or serotonin or ecotocin or something. And so there's a feeling of well-being that begins bubbling up more and more. It's kind of like you're getting a massage. And there's kind of a biofeedback system where you kind of stay on the breath you feel the concentration, you feel the joy that comes, and you stay in there, you, can, you kind of like the joy, kind of, it's like a cheerleader that encourages you on and on, and you let it get stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, another way is to kind of keep relaxing and kind of opening, relaxing, softening the body, so it kind of spills beyond wherever it's located. Um, some people, uh, some teachers talk about joy, uh, as you get concentrated, 
there'll be some kind of sign, some kind of symptom of something good happening. And whatever that good that's happening is, you take and begin letting it grow and spread. So uh, some people report uh, uh, the feeling of a great purity or delight or ease or peace uh, kind of connected to the breathing or the torso or the face or somewhere. And so you get some, uh, one teacher talks about the, uh, uh, when, you get, when you get a sense of real beauty with the breath, it really feels beautiful. So then you kind of get into that and you kind of spread that and let it develop. Um, so it's a little bit uh, strange to hear that for people doing a lot of vipassana practice because vipassana practice says just, just notice what's there. Just notice what's there. Don't get involved. You know, don't try to make anything happen. But in this process here, there's actually instructions to do get involved. But you have to be very gingerly, do that very tenderly or gingerly because if you bring too much ego and too much expectation, too much desire uh, to you know, getting involved, you can mess it up. So that's why these early early stages are very important to learn how to just be present for things how they are, to learn how to stay relaxed, to learn to, to purify your relationship, to be careful with the relationship you have and what's going on, so you're not striving and pushing or having too much ego involved. All this is really important so that when you start working with the joy, that you're not going to mess it up by you know having all this extra stuff involved. So there's kind of a purity of mind involved with it, ease. Um, does that answer your question, Mary? Enough. Yes, Sue. Thank you. Uh, when it is, uh, you know, after four steps, when the joy occurred or anything occurred, how can we develop? So once the joy occurs, how can we develop it? How? Yes. How to develop it? So. Um, uh, one way we develop is by just keep focusing on the concentration, staying on the breath. And just uh, staying on the breath by itself sometimes will let the joy grow. It's just a natural thing that can happen. You don't have to do anything. And so it's important to know sometimes you don't have to do anything. Just let it, it just grows. But also sometimes we can let it grow by recognizing it's there and feeling where in the body that joy is experienced. So local, localizing it in the body. Uh, some people feel it's sometimes strongly in the face, sometimes in the mouth. They can feel it. Sometimes a vibration in their forehead, sometimes tingling in their chest, sometimes tingling in their arms, a feeling of lightness, a feeling of, uh, of um, warmth. There's a variety of symptoms that come with that joy and that concentration. And once you localize it in your body, there can be a relaxing or opening or softening around it just to make space for it to grow and develop, to expand. Or, or, or a higher sensitivity to feel that it actually is much, it's, it's broader, it's, it's wider in the body than what you first, where you first localized it. It's kind of like, kind of glows beyond or something. And so you're tuning into it and kind of relaxing, relaxing, opening, allowing it, giving permission to kind of grow and develop. And sometimes that can do it. For myself, I've had the most luck with, um, in terms of developing greater concentration of joy, is uh, just staying on the, mostly just staying with the concentration of the object. Just staying really carefully with it. And, um, and then just making room, having a sense of allowing, giving permission, in a sense, for something else to happen on the side, almost. Almost like I'm, almost like I'm staying focused, but I kind of imagine that I'm creating a huge open container or field all around that, that allows something to come, to come into that space. And then this joy begins to coming. That bubbles up from the concentration. Um, 
Now, initially, it doesn't have to be very strong. So some people overlook it because they think oh, it's supposed to look dramatic. It's supposed to be this rapture that, you know, bliss. Um, the I think of sometimes a sense of relief. You know, the relief uh, that that comes from being secluded, being independent from the old habits of the mind, secluded from sensual desire and unskillful states of mind. So hopefully that's something you can all experience. Someday or other, you'll come to that place where you feel, oh, look at that. I'm not caught by the things I used to be caught by. I'm not caught at all. I'm just here. Wow, this is great. And you might feel a sense of relief, and that's enough. That's good. Or you might feel a little bit delight, and that's beginning experiencing that joy, the delight. And then you kind of just allow that to be there. And it doesn't have to be very dramatic. You don't have to kind of, you don't have to, there's no requirement to kind of make it into some dramatic, big, earth-shaking kind of rapture. Just, oh, here it is. And this is good. And you can allow yourself to be nourished by it. The idea of being nourished by the sense of well-being, I think is helpful. It's good. It's nice. It's not a, it's not a sin to feel joy in meditation. It's not a, you know, some, it's not something that you have to worry about that somehow you're going to get attached or, you know, or it's you're indulging or you're not taking life seriously enough. <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually possible to be nourished by these feelings of well-being that might start to, might happen sometimes. And allowing yourself to be nourished is one way to let it to grow. Yes, Meryl. Well, Am I assuming right that like strong sensations in the body and body pain have also um, sort of mellowed for joy to arise? Yeah, generally, when, you, when the mind is secluded from, uh, generally, from uh, the, these other forces, uh, generally there's not a lot of pain anymore. But there can be some. There can be strong joy. There can actually be a strong rapture, even with pain. Pain can be the object of concentration. And, and it's kind of odd, you know, to, to conventional minds that you can have strong pain and have strong joy at the same time because you're really focused on it. Um, the mind doesn't have to be caught up in the pain. It can be independent of it in a sense and the joy can, can sometimes arise. So, yes? Is uh, this step uh, different from the first jhana as far as the energetic quality of the joy and that sort of thing? Or is this is a description of the first jhana that I read. Okay. okay. This is the description. Okay. Secluded from sensual desires and unskillful states, a person falls into and abides in the joy and happiness born of seclusion of the first jhana, which is accompanied with thought and consideration. A person fills, pervades, saturates, and permeates this body with the joy and happiness born of seclusion, so nothing of the entire body is not touched with it. So, um, one of the qualities of this first absorption is that there's there's something called uh, vitaka and vichara. And vitaka and vichara, there's a tremendous debate in meditative circles of how Vitaka Vichara should be translated into English. And the, the big divide is some people say it means initial and sustained attention, silent awareness on something. 
And the other school says that it's, it's the initial and, sustain, and sustained uh, thinking and consideration. So one people say, it can't involve any thought. At this point, you're not thinking. And the other people say, yes, it does involve a kind of thinking. You're not thinking about something else. Your thought, your consideration is about the breath, about what's happening here and now in a way that's helpful and supportive and gets you, gets you engaged. And um, there's no real way of anybody deciding this once and for all what the Buddha meant. But um, uh, it's possible uh, to be very present and still have some rudimentary kind of thinking, very simple thinking that connects you to the breathing and then keeps you there, keeps you there looking at it and engaged in it and present for it. Kind of a little bit, a very simple kind of, kind of reporting almost. Kind of, this is how it is, kind of reporting, like a very simple kind of thinking that keeps you there. Generally, the people who say that uh, this kind of very rudimentary thinking that helps you be present is part of meditation, part of jhanas, will say that that falls away in the second or the third jhana. As you go further, it has to fall away. But that, uh, in that first jhana, it's still there. And uh, so why am I talking about that? Oh, because you asked about jhana, first jhana. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> the way you're talking about sort of the softness of this joy or happiness seemed a little in contrast to the way I sort of been taught about the first jhana, which has so much energy with it and physical rapture. That's why I was wondering. So, so, um, so those of you who might not know, there are in Buddhism these four absorptive state, absorption states when the mind gets really concentrated. And this is the first one I described here. And just as this debate, no, not just like... Um, there's this debate about what this vitaka and vichara mean. There's a much bigger debate about what constitutes an absorption state, and what uh, jhana. And there's different. There's jhana light people, jhana heavy people, you know. And and uh, and the jhana heavy people say the jhana light people don't know what they're talking about. It's not really jhana. And uh, so it's a, you know it's it's endless acrimony, and uh, and partly there's no real authoritative basis to really make a final decision once and for all. So you can't go back to the suttas and say definitively, this is what it means, this is what it says. Um, they're all pretty good. <laughs> so just, we should just celebrate the fact that this good stuff is happening to people. Um, and um, and um, I prefer to say, for the most part, that, that there's a range of intensity that each of these jhanas can be experienced in. And I'm content to allow there to be a range from being relatively mild to being very intense. And when it's intense, there's a lot of energy, like when the rapture is strong, especially in the second jhana. Um, you know, there's, it can be, you know, there's beautiful, uh, beautiful descriptions. Uh, uh, there's a description of five different kinds of joy that can arise. And I don't I memorize the five, but exactly all of them. But there's um, momentary joy, there's cascading joy, there's, um, well, that's pretty good, right? Cascade, <laughs> cascading joy. You know, and I remember once I was on retreat and um, I was having a lot of joy, very concentrated. And I went into a dining room to have, I think, a lunch. And I was sitting there, I came late and I was mostly sitting there alone and I had the food in front of me. And, um, and so I would, you know, pick up the fork to take a bite. And just that movement of my arm just sent uh, these waves and waves of intense uh, joy, rapture through my body. It was so intense I had to put the fork down. 
and then, then you know, after a while, I said, okay, I gotta try again. <laughs> so it can be that way, you know. And also, it can be really quiet and peaceful, you know. And the idea that it's supposed to be a certain way is a little bit dangerous, you know. So it's a little bit, you know, then people are pushing, and some people I don't try to push and pump up and get it going some big way. And so we just. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so now you know, those of you who don't know, now you know that there's this, um, there, are, there is controversy in Buddhism. <laughs> in case you thought that Buddhism was all harmony and just a very simple, straightforward teaching that everyone agreed on. Yes? Uh, once you start experiencing it, does it, that, once you experience it, does it come every time? Uh, once you experience it, does it come every time? Yeah, does it come every time you meditate or it's like on and off that type of... <laughs> No, it, it, it comes together for... There's a lot of causes and conditions for it. So it, the causes and conditions have to be there to kind of allow it to happen. So um, if something really difficult in your life has recently happened, the mind then is dealing with those strong emotions and feelings and thoughts. It can't get settled enough to make it happen. Um, and um, so... Or maybe you haven't, you're sick, or maybe it's you know, this and that. So there's a variety of... Or maybe uh, the, your concentration is not strong enough. So, for example, if, uh, if you experience it on retreat, some people experience this joy or various things on retreat. They, I got it made, and they go home and sit every day. I'm going to sit every day, and the first day they sit, you know, for half an hour, it's just, good, I got it. Second day, well, it wasn't so strong. The third day, you know, it starts to fade away because they're not sitting enough to maintain strong enough concentration. The concentration has to be strong. They stay strong. And concentration is like a muscle. They can get weak if you don't use it. So a lot of things can affect it. And um, I remember a friend of mine told me he's 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 very good uh, in getting into the jhanas, and he said he spent once six months or nine months unable to get into it because he was angry with someone. Mm-hmm. You, know, took that, that, you know that anger took that took that long to kind of work through it, and then he was able to go again. So, <clears throat> is it raining? <laughs> There's a saying in Buddhism that just like the rain falls in the forest and the different plants, different kinds of plants, trees and bushes and flowers, whatever, they take up the water they need. So in the same way, the rain of the Dharma falls on all of us, and each of us takes it in as we need what we need. So um, let's maybe sit now. I'll do another guided meditation around this. If you'd like to stand, you've been sitting now for quite a while, so stand, stretch, linger up. So it, it, it certainly can cause all kinds of unfortunate consequences to talk about joy as you know something that comes with meditation because people then expect it or look for it and judge themselves negatively. They don't have it. So there is a risk. But the benefit of talking about it is that then people are more likely to um, open up, be sensitive, or allow it to come if it's there. If you know that it's you know, a healthy thing to happen in meditation, then you make space for it. 
if you think it's uh, if you don't know it's part of the process, then you might overlook it. If it starts, small hints of it begin bubbling up. <laughs> 